and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm George Hendricks. And today we are talking about Minute 117. It begins with Ripley, not Riley, with Ripley continuing to carry Newt (laughs) and ends with the reveal of an alien queen. I'm guessing I uh, had a little typo there. Well, it said, no, I just had a uh, misspeak-o. Okay, gotcha. Good. All right, yeah, so we're here at 117, and we have a guest today, George. We do. Uh, We do have a guest. Yeah, cinematographer, filmmaker Todd Norris, who has been on the show a few times before, is going to come in and talk to us about this minute. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Todd. How you doing, Todd? Thanks for having me back. Good. I'm great. Um, Yeah, we're... Right in the middle of some action here, so you're jumping right in. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's it's not difficult to jump into action when you're doing the movie Aliens. So. <laughs> no, especially in the last pick a place, <laughs> last <laughs> half hour or so. That's kind of your what your options are. <laughs> like, there's typically a uh, uh, there's not typically any kind of uh, um, digression to jump in on. So um, it's good, but yeah. So we've got uh, we just ended talking about you know Ripley and Newt exiting this cocoon area that newt was kept in um got some explosions to punctuate that minute a uh, little fake newt we already talked about the uh the newt dummy that is apparently this is the introduction of here that scorny weaver got to carry around in lieu of a real child for a few shots so um now we're in now we're in running around and um it's a convincing dummy, by the way. Had I not been told about that, I, I I never would have even thought about that. I didn't know until you said anything. And I've seen this movie a dozen times or more. So, so I was like, oh, really? They used a fake one? Okay. <laughs> so we get her. She runs out of that room and runs right into something. And, uh, you know, for the first seconds uh, of the scene that we're moving into, I suppose if the first time you watch the movie you have no idea what it is that we're, we're sort of punctuating again. It's kind of hanging a lantern on the fact that she's seeing something different here. Right. Uh Uh, Todd, the first time you saw this movie, we talked a little bit, you know, weeks ago when you were on with me and Mitch about you having seen this movie in the theater um, Mm -hmm. way back in 1986. And I'm wondering what your thoughts were right here. Like once she rescues Newt, were you thinking, okay, there's going to be another big thing around the corner here, or did this take you by surprise? Well, I'm certain that it took me by surprise. I mean, you know, my, my uh, it's been so long now that my exact memories are, are are fading, but my general, what I think my memory is, is that I was so completely caught up in the movie by this moment that I was just living existentially. I was Ripley at the time. So I was probably (laughs) freaking out a little bit and not thinking about story structure or anything. Um, It it was all just a a wash of dread and tension and, and also just sheer cinematic enjoyment. Um, I think the movie had done a good job of subtly setting this moment up. Uh, You know, this is different than the director's cut where there's the, Hudson scene where he's speculating about how they might be like insects. So that's not in this version. So there's a little bit of the, the, the line is who's laying all these eggs. And so the, the arrival of this moment isn't totally out of nowhere, but since this is the thing that is new, right? This is the James Cameron contribution to the life cycle of the alien. Uh, I think, you know, it was definitely a, 
oh my God moment again, yeah. you know, of like, how can they keep top? This movie just keeps topping itself scene after scene after scene. So I think I was probably just slinking lower in my seat. Right. Yeah. All you get is that, like you said, the line about, well, who's laying all these eggs. And then you get Bishop saying it's it must be something we've never seen before. Right. Which when that line comes, it's got, it's, it's a good heavy line and it's so much better without that ensuing conversation that you get about the ants and bees and yeah. all that crap, which doesn't even really hold when you think about it. We might talk about this more tomorrow, but it doesn't even, the analogy doesn't even hold as well yeah. <laughs> as with other insects, for instance, I guess it's Hudson making the analogy, so it shouldn't be perfectly accurate. <laughs> the, the best part of that moment that of the cut scene is that it's basically uh, that Vasquez still finds a way to argue with him. <laughs> yeah. They're not insects, man. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, it's a good character moment between the two, but it's too much. You know, I, I suppose it undoubtedly would be in the movie if made today. Undoubtedly. Well, yeah, because they, they would do, want the great part about though, this reveal is the fact that it's coming on the heels of all this sort of like, we've already thinking we're having their dramatic moment where Newt's been captured. She's been, you know, cocooned and Ripley sets out on her own to go find her. And we think, okay, we're having our sort of like denouement type thing. And then, through complete sheer just survivalism. She just runs from the explosion, runs the other way and just finds herself right in the middle of the egg room. And it's that sort of like, Oh my God, we're here without even realizing we're here. That's really the gut punch of the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's true. And you pointed out something interesting there because we have a breadcrumb trail that she's, we're going to see her follow it later. Um, We would have, you would think that she would turn around and go out, the same way she came in, right? That's yeah, her that's whole what, intention. That was my, was like, why didn't she, like, oh, wait, because there was just a massive explosion in the direction she exactly. could do that. Yep. Yeah, so those explosions ended up playing a little bit more of yeah. a role than we initially talked about yesterday. But, um, yeah, she runs into this room and we get this shot and it always, it's not the exact same thing by any means, but this always reminds me just a little bit of that moment in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it's a similar kind of shot when, uh, when um, Indy is looking for Marion and he knows she's in the basket and he runs out and, and uh, <laughs> runs right into that, hits his mark perfectly in focus in that close up and realizes mm-hmm. he's seeing like hundred baskets. Right. Yeah. So this is a similar kind of shot. It's got a lot. I mean, it's a punchy shot. It's got a lot of punch to it. You know, that something is important is happening when you run in like into focus into a face, a, a close up of the face and the eyes bug out and, and the audience, you, you hold for just a second before you show um, the audience goes, Oh shit. What is she seeing here? What is this now? Especially now because they've just had a, this frenetic moment with all the explosions. We're a little off guard too. And maybe in the back of our mind, assuming that she's following her trail back. So what could be new that she's saying, well, you know, we're going to find out when we cut to the next shot. Yep. Well, yeah. And, and uh, what I'd like to bring up too, is that there's a really great use of uh, sound or in fact, the lack of sound is what really makes us perk up in this moment is that, you know, James Cameron is a big fan of lots of noise and explosions and, and music score. And, but he understands again, the dynamics that right after this moment with the big explosions and the James Horner score, suddenly what not only does the 
the close-up of Ripley's face, but also the fact that the score, the explosions, everything goes away. And this is about the most silent this movie has been. Yeah, all you hear is wind minutes. and like the 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 burn of the propane coming off of her uh, her flamethrower. You just hear this, just nothing but atmospherics. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. All the sounds are actually sort of variations on the same thing. It's like this breathy hiss. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Ripley breathing. There's the sound of that blue flame on her flamethrower. And there's sort of an ambient thing. And then the the first sound that doesn't sound like that is the uh, the sound of the eggs being laid. You know that gross sort of organic uh, squishy organic uh... squishy sound. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's a great use of sound. Yeah, it's it's. We were talking Todd yesterday a little bit about the integration and the interweaving of genre. Um, and in that particular case, we were talking about how the action movie genre tends to kind of overtake the rest of the genre tropes that you're using a lot of times and kind of throws the rule book out as far as horror sci-fi. Sometimes if you're going full on action, just start blowing things up. But here we, you know, have just gotten out of a big action moment with a bunch of explosions and noise. And like you said, we're into this quiet moment where it's like almost like wind coming through the drafty haunted house, you know, yeah. and we get this nice haunted house moment where somebody, you know, somebody walked into the wrong room of the house. This is where the monster's been the whole time. And it's a great, like, it's like Cameron understands, okay, we're, we're going to jump over to genre, a different genre again for just a second. We're going to have a horror movie moment for a second here. Yeah. And this moment of like uh, chilling discovery and yeah, to, to underscore it with any score, you know, would have been probably a pretty big mistake. Yeah. It would have definitely taken on this part. So good restraint. The there, Jimmy. Good restraint. Yeah. <laughs> so we cut wide to this egg chamber. We get a, this nice shot of, um, for the first time, really seeing a bunch of eggs. And as far as you can see, right, like you're seeing more, um, they're filling the frame right, left, and all the way into the background. <laughs> so the idea is, man, there's, this is the biggest, uh, biggest uh, find yet as far as where these aliens are coming from. And I remember this one when I first saw this movie, I gasped <laughs> a little bit when I saw these eggs. Of course, I had not seen Alien yet, as I've said a zillion times before. But I was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? We just had that scene where I saw a face hugger come out of an egg. Um, how many of them are going to come out now? I kind of think anticipated a, a, a face hugger attack here again, maybe. But uh, it's a pretty breathtaking shot, and it's nicely lit. What do what, I wanted to get now, Todd, here's where we start to get into where I wanted to get some of uh, what you had to say about how this is shot. So we got the lighting in this room. Looks like we got some like flash bulbs going off or something yeah. to give it a little. There's a lot of practical as well. Just yeah. The strobes and the, and the rotating lights and the warning lights type things. Yeah. I mean the, uh, the, the realistic practical stuff would be exactly that the sort of strobes or it, it's, it looks like it's a uh, sort of rotating flashing emergency lights. There's a, a movement to them. Um, but on an unrealistic level, but yet super cool in terms of the mood is the uh, the fog or the, the smoke that's in the frame that's being backlit by okay. really unmotivated. Uh, if you think about it, it, it seems like the in the, the cool shots where there's these shafts of smoky light, there just happens to be a light strategically placed right behind objects that don't have any logical reason for being there, but they sure look cool. Um, one thing that I noticed in terms of the, one of the things that I think makes this scene stand out in addition to of course the, the the plot moment of it being the reveal of the queen is that it seems to be shot and this is probably why you're asking me it seems to be shot on much more telephoto lenses than the rest of the movie there's yeah. a different look to this 
specific moment than pretty much any other moment in the film. And uh, which interestingly makes it look a lot more like the original alien because Ridley Scott is much more of a user of long telephoto lenses than James Cameron is. So suddenly the movie ends up looking a little bit more like Alien right here. Yeah. In this well, moment. it's because it got that really long depth of field and because you want to be able to see everything. But and the thing is about telephoto compresses. So I'm a photographer, by the way. I'm not just like talking out of my butt. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it does have a much more, um, it, it's almost like a, a diorama. It's got this great like sort of like scope to it that you don't get when you use the, like the, the smaller, smaller aperture, I mean, smaller um, focal lengths. Yeah. And so I, since it's such a different, I mean, it's not radically different, but it's, it, it does look like they decided to use longer lenses in this moment than the rest of the film. And so just on a practical level, I was trying to figure out, well, why were they doing this? And part of what I can think of why there, there's two reasons. One is that you know, they didn't have an infinite budget for this movie and they were really crunched for time. And I imagine that the alien, the, the egg chamber set is not as big as we think it is. And one way to sort of disguise yeah. a lack of actual real estate that this set has is to strategically place all the eggs in the frame so that it looked like there was foreground, mid ground, background eggs everywhere. But yet by using a long lens, um, you could hide the fact that there was probably nothing to the left and to the right of the mm -hmm. shot and all the eggs that they had for the scene were right there. And the like 30 eggs total, maybe. And then just like crammed them in there strategically and then shot, put on a long lens and yeah. go. they just shoot, the they shoot long and narrow and then don't worry about the sides and exactly and look as, as crazy and as the, it does. The other thing that I notice is that there is that kind of heat wave shimmer look on the yeah. tight close-ups, and that's much easier to do with long lenses, you can actually just, you know, put a match in front of the lens or, you know, a little bit of a heat source below, just below the lens in front of the camera and huh. you get that shimmery effect. And I, my, I guess that they probably wanted to imply that it was boiling hot and they probably just figured it looked cool. And that was one way to achieve it that you can't really do with a wide angle lens. Yeah. But, that's what I was going to say that, that I thought that that might've been the, I don't know if that would have been a motivating factor for using the long lens or if it would have been, Oh, we're using a long lens. Now we can do this heat vapor shot that looks so cool. And as a kid of the eighties, as I am, those shots, I love them. I, I, there were so many of them at the time. One of them I can remember um, very distinctly, not a great movie. And I guess this was maybe early nineties, but it was another 48 hours. Um, <laughs> oh, when with the motorcycles. Yeah. When the, the, the opening scene with <laughs> yeah. McNulty, when you have the, he goes to the motorcycle race or the, uh, or no, the, uh, it's like a, it's like a car racing, a track and and he just walks onto the screen through heat vapor you know in the background yeah. and it's just so badass that was where walter hill went completely batshit uh <laughs> almost john woo level action movie with yeah. another 48 hours but those i love shots like that those just give me chills for some reason i don't know if it's because they because they do look cool or because they were such a product of the time period when I really got into movies. And I think they look cool, but the they do look cool. The first lethal weapon has some of that too. You know, when Mel Gibson gets captured out there in the desert, oh, yeah. and this, this heat wave shimmer. So yeah, it was definitely an eighties staple to uh, use the long lens for the telephoto heat wave shimmer effect. I'm sure, oh. I'm sure no music video ever did that either. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> True. I'm sure there's a, we could find a few, I guess, but yeah, that was uh you know, I don't know if one's the product, which, which one came first, uh, uh, the 
you know, the chicken or the egg, I guess the alien or the egg question that we have here could have been that they were like, well, we need to use, like you said, Todd, we need to use these long uh, lenses, these telephoto lenses, because we need to create the illusion of this set being bigger and so on. Oh, but that would also enable us to do this. And wouldn't that look Mm -hmm. cool? And it's a great time to have something change visually, I think um, though, because this is such a big moment, Yeah, right? We got this we've come to this place where we've had a lot of tricks pulled out of the sleeves, you know, uh, throughout the movie and we have to one up it one more time. It's like, okay, this is a really big moment. We're going to not only are we going to slow things down. So we're now we're going to go into slow motion again for the first time in a while. Um, we're also going to do this through this heat vapor with the long lens. It's going to kind of, I mean, am I crazy? The long lens kind of grains out the shots too, right? They look a little grainier to me. Does that make sense? Or is it the heat vapor or the lighting that's causing that? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that that would particularly affect the actual graininess of the yeah. image, but perhaps the film. low level of light on the set, you know, they, right out, real high ISO and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That they, uh, I think they notoriously did shoot the stock yeah. at a very, uh, precarious level of exposure so that they, it, the grain definitely did show. In the- you also have to keep it. Oh yeah. And the thing is like, I guess they switched because the, the up of Ripley and Newt, with the, like the awesome side lighting and like, you know, like there's no front. It's all like super moody, but like Newt's face is out of focus and Ripley's is, mm-hmm. and they're probably like scant inches apart. So they probably switched out to a really wide aperture for the close-ups just to isolate them out a okay. lot more. That's true. Cause she is, yeah, you could see uh, Newt's just a little soft in the mm-hmm. right side of the frame yeah. there. Yeah. It's such a class. That's the shot I'm thinking of though. You know, that's like one that looks a little grainy to me, but, um, yeah. 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 On this transfer, I can see what you mean in the background. It looks a little, um, not pixelated, but yeah, a little on the grain side. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's possible too that, um, you know, James Cameron was definitely very aware of the fact that he was making a sequel. And John, as you've mentioned that the beginning parts of the movie start in Ridley land and then eventually develop into Cameron land. Mm-hmm. But, but he does provide little nods to the movie all throughout. And, it's possible too that these super long lens close-ups of Ripley's face as she's seeing this is a nod to there are some definitely iconic shots from the original Alien of Ripley. You know when uh, at the end in the self-destruct sequence where she comes up the ladder and there's that kind of focus pull from her hand to mm-hmm. her sweaty face, and it's this really shallow depth of field long lens shot that just emphasizes her eyes. And this shot here seems to mimic that kind of look and so there's sort of an emotional intensity that you get when you're zoned right in on on her eyes and the rest of the shot is basically out of focus yeah this is before they jumped into the third one and it just went off the rails completely so i think there's a lot of attempts to bridge the two you know like have those emotional connections both visual or, or stylized ways even though they're vastly different styles as directors um cameron's doing his best to sort of like you know like I get where it's coming from. I, I'm not trying to supersede. I'm trying to enhance. And so he has like these connector moments like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, so we're going to get, you know, the minute ends, we see what um, Ripley and Newt are gawking at here. They're, they're just kind of, you know, g- scanning around at something wide eyed, you know, gobsmacked a little bit. And we're going to see what that is, which is, Pretty fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, though, my first thought when I was a kid and I saw this movie was like, 
That's really gross. This is really, really gross. Just get this squirmy, squishy egg plopping out of an insectoid, like, I guess, abdomen. I don't, I don't know what you call that. Uh, just, yeah. yeah, gross. <laughs> what did you guys think about this the first time you saw it? Oh, it was um, terrifying. I mean, it was like, it was just that one of those, like, open, wide-eyed, oh, shit moments. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, the... the Again, that that goopy, slimy sound effect coupled with, you know, whatever we're looking at in this giant egg sack, um, it is pretty repulsive. <laughs> yeah. No, Todd, what did you think? Like you said, you were pretty much just in the in the mode watching this movie, kind of just being Ripley. So maybe you didn't think about this all that much. But were you were you down with this idea of how the eggs were formed or how the alien this addition to the alien life cycle or? Are you still, if you were, or? Yeah, I, I, I know that there's, in retrospect, a controversy uh, about Cameron's uh, contribution to the alien life cycle. Um, but at, <laughs> at the at the moment, I, of course, yeah, I didn't, I was not able to be uh, thinking about extra extra movie things like that at all. I was literally in the moment. So, and in fact, you know, I, I'm I'm fairly easygoing when it comes to the to the uh, mythos of alien. And I, I feel like I, I still don't have a problem with it. I think it's fine. And um, so that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. Uh, and especially for the, for this movie, it's critical um, because of the whole battle of the maternal figures. I mean, the whole thing with it's Ripley and Newt being this sort of surrogate mother daughter pair mm -hmm. versus the queen with her kids. And so on a thematic level, it wouldn't work without this um it would just be a completely different movie that would be um out of whack so i think it's necessary to be honest yeah and as problematic as the reproductive cycle is as we discussed yesterday um it's still i mean it's like it's just one of those things where you can't not have it yeah no i agree i think this is a hundred percent i'm a hundred percent on board with this idea for this movie and how it plays out in the script as the story is being told. When I think about what the original idea was supposed to be, what Giger's idea was supposed to be, I guess, uh, or him and Ridley Scott, or however that original idea of the egg morphing came about, um, I, I prefer that as an idea. I think that's really cool. It's very horrific. It's very novel idea to, that they take people and somehow can transform them into the egg. You know, I think that's really horrific and strange. And then maybe what the face hugger is part Brett or whatever, because that's the only person you ever see in a shot or in the deleted scene that's being morphed into an egg. Interesting. So the idea that then Brett becomes a face hugger, you know, of sorts, or at least part of Brett becomes a face hugger. I find all that much more interesting. How the hell would you convey that in this movie? Well, see, that's, for me, that sort of loses the thread as far as like just the physics of physiology and like biology, like how, like how would that happen? It's like, it's, it's moving out of um, anatomy and physiology to like magic. And that's sort of like, yeah. it's so unexplainable that it's like, it's this weird Kafka esque, like transmutation type thing, which I don't like it, no alien species is going to have that as a man. Let's have a, like a ray. They shoot you with or something and just boom, you're an egg, which is kind of hokey. Mm -hmm. So I like having the the much more like visceral biological component to it than this like just oh let's make them into an egg. Yeah, especially for this movie that's more grounded. Yeah, right. So this movie in a way is more grounded, or this movie is um, expanding the universe a bit. So 
Alien worked great because it was so alien, for lack of a better word. I mean, it was just so strange. You couldn't explain that life cycle. You couldn't explain how any of this works. So it's terrifying. And if we walk out of the theater terrified, the movie's done its job. So the idea of this sort of magical reproduction, this morphing people into an egg thing, could have been just another horrific idea that doesn't really hold water scientifically. But if you're going to make a movie like this where you're grounding it, you're showing like Marines. We know who Marines are. Okay, this is grounding us further. If you're going to give us any sort of scientific uh, background to anything at all, then having that like – and it turns people into eggs, which sound yeah. pretty ridiculous. So um, I think this is the right choice for this particular movie. Now, if I was reading alien novels, if they were, you know, some hard sci-fi books or something, and you could, or not hard sci-fi, I guess it'd be the other way. It would be more like a fantasy sci-fi book. Uh, then I would find that to be a very hor- horrific concept, this egg morphing. Hmm. And this insectoid thing would be a little too on the nose. But for this movie, uh, yeah, I think this is great. It's too great a moment uh, of a moment to throw away anyway. I mean, I love this idea and this uh, escalation in the movie. So uh, I'm with it, too. I'm with you guys. I'm, I'm, and like you, Todd, I'm a little bit more laid back about this stuff. You know, despite the fact I'm doing this granular analysis podcast, <laughs> I actually am not like a hard ass about any of it. I'm, like if it worked in the movie, then it works. And I don't care. If, yeah. You know, and at the same time, I enjoy people debating which, which thing they prefer. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't think in an, I mean, I think the litmus test is that if if something in Aliens ruined the enjoyment of the original alien, then there would be a problem. But I don't find anything about this movie that diminishes my enjoyment of the first movie at all. Like I, I just, mm-hmm. it doesn't bother me. So um, yeah, the hallmark of a good sequel is if it makes the original seem better or at least like, it like elevates it in, in a way. And I think, I think Blade Runner 2049 did that. Godfather two did that. Like the really hallmark sequels that really will stand to the t- test of time are the ones that take the original and and recognize that it's there, but then by being there, make the original better. And I think this one does that. It expands the universe. It, it expands the mythos. It doesn't over-explain everything, but it does let really you dig deeper. Yeah, I think you're right. And the, you know, then the hallmark of a really good film is that a sequel didn't ruin it. It goes the other way as well. Like, okay, a shitty sequel comes along. Yeah. So what? Um, like, not that I don't think I, – I, I love The Matrix – but the sequels, the sequels kind of ruined it for me in a way. Now that I watch, when I watch The Matrix and they talk about, um, shit, I've even forgotten the name of the, what's the uh, storied place they're always talking about that they finally oh, go to? Zion. Zion, thank you. Um, I can't, when they're talking about it in the original one, it seems so mysterious, sort of like the force, you know? Um and then when you see it, it's a fucking rave, you know, <laughs> like, I'm like now when I watch matrix and I see, and they talk about Zion, I'm like, it's just that rave, man. Who cares? Like, why are you fighting for this thing? But, um, so usually I can compartmentalize better than that, but maybe it's because the matrix is a good movie and not a great movie. And so the sequels kind of took it down a little bit. Gotcha. But alien had aliens been terrible. I still think alien. Would oh have, yeah. It's, I, it's watch so alien, I wouldn't think of yeah, there, you wouldn't have it like, yeah. you know, the jaws, you know, the jaws movies, like the sequels were mm-hmm. not great, but the, but the original still holds because it's that good. It's real easy to just sweep the jaws sequels off the table and not even think about exactly. Them. Really like, oh yeah. There are like five of them, but whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys have anything else for this minute? I just wanted to point out that like at the very last second of this minute, there's an absolute horrific insert shot that they, the B team probably picked up because I'm 90% sure that the person who is Sigourney Weaver is a dude. And oh. it's, oh, you, 
If you go, to, you think if, that if you go to second fifty nine and pause it, it looks like Kurt Russell is holding <laughs> someone else. You know, and there is a, just a complete, it's just a total still. Like, like okay, we need to B team. We need more establishing shot of the Queen. So let's get everybody back oh. in here. The lighting is different, and it's not nearly as good. It's just a complete B team shot. God damn it! You, her hair is not right <laughs> at all. Horrible. I never noticed that before, it's and it just could be that thing. A kid, because Newt moves a little bit, so you might that might be Carrie Hinn, but they, Sigourney Weaver's back and everything. But with even her it doesn't even like Carrie Hinn's hair. It's like at this weird short, like it doesn't have the curl to it. It's it, it, it's it, this is like they just got a bunch of people together and just picked, did a pickup shot with the with the alien. I don't think that's Gailey and her not tall enough. <laughs> she did a lot of doubling. I don't know. Yeah, you're I, screwing with me I here because now they look at him like totally I don't looks think like that's a stunt double and, and not a great one at that. This is like got that spaceballs feel of everybody's got like a mustache and like you know they come through like oh it's a stunt doubles. I will say that the pan before that last shot the the pan across the egg sack is um, a quarter sized miniature. So oh, that's yeah. that's a miniature set and a, a puppeteered miniature of all that going on. But then the reveal of the actual alien queen's head with the uh, now controversial foreground actors, <laughs> um, <laughs> that is a, that is a full scale puppet. Apparently that's like a 14 foot oh, wow. giant thing. So it's going from, they're pretty effortlessly cross cutting between miniature work, live action shots and, you know, full size uh, yeah. puppeteer puppets. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's a good job. I think kudos need to go uh, to the second unit team for making all this stuff match. Uh, I mean, the, the advantage they did have was that I believe that the miniatures and all that stuff were being shot literally on a place kind of next door to the main stage so that James Cameron could kind of go back and forth and make sure everything was working and matching. But um, that's a thankless job to uh, match the lighting and the exposure and the look of the main cinematographer and director's stuff yeah. to, to make it effortlessly. Um, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of, a lot of concentration and thought to get mm-hmm. all of that to match. Yeah, It's easy Especially to make something look good. If you're coming up with it, it's very hard to make it look good. If you're trying to intimate, imitate it Ugh, in words. Yeah. 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 Cause there's always something no. just, just off, always something off. A good thing to bring up is that Stan Winston was technically the second unit director of the movie. So you've got the guy mm-hmm. who's actually in charge of the the uh, practical alien effects, actually in charge of doing the second unit work, which is probably a smart thing, um, you know, because he's definitely motivated to make sure that it, it works and integrates with the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they did do a great job with all this and the puppet from now on, like for the rest of the movie, you know, we'll talk about it a lot more over the next couple of weeks, but there's a lot of kind of combining uh, front proje- projection, miniature shots, puppeteering, full size puppets, like, for, like you said, 14 foot, I believe they claim that this is the largest, I think Stan Winston himself says on the commentary that this is the largest puppet ever um, articulated, at least in a film. So, um, it's great. Yeah. Uh, definitely this movie as I'm, as I'm you know, going through this whole movie minute by minute, I'm realizing this really is one of the great effects films ever made. I think, especially considering the budget and time constraints and how they were able to still pull everything off. So um, yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Uh, if that's going to do it, then uh, Todd, you want to tell people where they can find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find uh, the short films that I've done on toddnorris.net. And I also do stuff with uh, Mitch Bryan, who's a, another uh, co-host of your show. And we're at jetpatpicks.com. And George? Uh, just find me on the internet at the Mogwai Minute and various places. Go listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Instagram at Alien Minute Podcast, or on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Minute 117. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute 118.